welcome to The Race to the White House, where we cover everything you need to know about the 2016 US election. I'm Emma Lancaster and I'll be your host for the next three weeks as we count down to November 8. And we're getting closer and closer to that date. And a fun fact for you, with only 20 days to go, and that is also the number, but in millions, of new people who have healthcare under the Obamacare reforms. So joining me in the studio now to discuss everything you need to know from the campaign trail are our regular guests from the US Study Centre. It's Tom Switzer. Welcome, Tom. Hi there, Emma. And Brendan O'Connor. Good to be back with you, Emma. And new to the ranks of Race to the White House, but an old hand in the world of US politics, we have the CEO of the US Study Centre joining us, Professor Simon Jackman. Welcome, Simon. Good to be here. Uh, so Simon became the CEO of the US Study Centre based at Sydney University in April of this year. But before that, he spent two decades at Stanford University in California. And Simon is an expert in US and Australian elections, election campaigns and political participation, as well as public opinion. Uh, so Simon is well known for his work on poll averaging, combining polls over the course of an election campaign to produce better predictions of election outcomes. So we're very pleased to have you on the show today as we examine, with just three weeks out, where this race is heading. You bet. Uh, so today on the show, we're going to take a closer look at the polls. A poll used to mean the top of your head. In Act 4 of Shakespeare's play, Hamlet, Ophelia says to Polinius, his beard as white as snow or flaxen was his poll. This is, of course, when voting required counting heads. Uh, eventually, a poll came to be known as the count itself. Uh, by the 19th century, uh, to vote was to go to the polls. But today, we are talking about modern public opinion polls. It's been around since the Great Depression, uh, when the response rate, that's the number of people who take a survey as a percentage of those who were asked, was more than 90. Today, that particular participation rate is much, much lower. Lately, the sea of polls is deeper than ever before. And as The New Yorker pointed out in an article last year by Jill Lepore, from the late 1990s to 2012, 1,200 polling organisations conducted nearly 37,000 polls by making more than 3 billion phone calls. And most Americans refuse to speak to them. And as we have seen in Australia recently, political careers can rise and fall on the wave of popular opinion, but polls are not necessarily just conducted over the phone. There are internet-based polls, and now they're being married with an, and even replaced by data science. So polls have been labelled the pulse of democracy. Uh, so is measuring public opinion good for democracy or destroying it? Simon. Oh, wow. Um, I tend to think on balance they're good for democracy. I know George Megalaganis is... Uh, Australian journalists perhaps are best associated with the proposition that polls are destroying democracy. I think Andrew Lee in the uh, federal parliament is also calls them the, uh, what are the, the candy that's rotting the teeth of Australian uh, democracy. Look, it's not seen that way in the United States, in part because I think there are so many polls in the US, they're just part of the background. I think the thing about Australia is that the problem is there aren't enough polls. Uh, news poll for in, in particular... Uh, has this outsized influence in Australian mm. politics. It's every fortnight. It's in the, the national broadsheet, the, the Australian. If there were more media outlets commissioning more polls uh, and they were just sort of ubiquitous and every day there was one, I think we'd pay less attention to news polls. It's almost like many things in Australian society. The, the concentration of investment, the concentration in various industries, and we have that at work in the uh, in the polling industry as well, we've got one big poll that 
that has been around for a long time, has a lot of prominence in, as I said, in, in the Australian newspaper, and politicians pay altogether too much attention to it. Um, if we had more of them, I think that'd be less the case. But there's a big difference that during a four-year term, a president can't be dumped on the basis of polls. Mm. I mean, your ratings are important in terms of building momentum on an issue, using the bully pulpit, but you can't be dumped as uh, president because the polls are bad. Where in Australia, I suppose there's a sense that if you're uh, a creature of the polls like Kevin Rudd, the polls made you, the polls then can break you. Um, that you can, if suddenly your popularity goes down, uh, your colleagues start talking in uh, rooms behind your back and uh, your career can be over. Yeah, I agree with both Simon and Brendan. And as someone who's had uh, experience, albeit limited experience, working for a federal opposition leader, I can assure you and all our listeners that an opposition leader or indeed a prime minister, if they're under the gun, they sweat every Monday afternoon when Dennis Shanahan from The Australian will tip <laughs> off the opposition leader about what's going to appear as the front page story the next day. <laughs> and I think ultimately it has a very bad influence on Australian politics, which might explain the huge amount of leadership churn we have in Canberra. I think it's different in America precisely because of the point that Simon makes. There's uh, a lot more Brendan. polls. Um, Brendan, that's a really good point about the institutional difference. Uh, there's no way a president's being unseated on the back of uh, bad poll numbers. On the other hand, the approval rating is a number uh, that carries a lot of weight in, in the US. When a president's got a bad approval rating, his ability to get Congress to pay attention to him or her um, is, is really dramatically uh, lessened. So there's this concept called presidential approval. It's a measure of the president's uh, political capital. He can't be removed or she can't be removed on the back of it. Yeah. But boy, oh boy, that is a poll creation and carries an awful lot of weight uh, in, in Washington, nonetheless. The Race for the White House, a US election podcast for the non-American. You know, Simon, you're saying we don't have enough polls in Australia, but how do we know a good poll from a bad poll? Yeah, fair enough, yeah. I think, you know, with little governance, they can give us distorted readings of the electoral climate, perhaps even manufacture a false public consensus. Um, so how do we know the good from the bad? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a great point. Uh, there's an awful lot of bad polls out there. I'd point to, you know, I think what's happened, and the New York Times gets a lot of credit for this, uh, taking on Nate Silver under their wing and, and really Nate demonstrating that there's a real appetite in the American public at least, and I'd even say internationally as well, uh, um, for understanding what's going on in the world of polling a lot better. And one of the things that this has done is really sharpen up journalists' understanding of this, their sensibility of this, of the question you just put, what's a good poll, what's a bad poll, and in turn, the public's understanding of this. What's happened, you mentioned declining response rates. Uh, uh, phone polls are, are still considered to be uh, quite high standard. Uh, live interviewers are, uh, with random digit dial is, is considered perhaps still sort of uh, not quite gold standard, but, but silver standard, if you, if you will. The difficulty they face is for a media poll, you're trying to turn the poll around in probably 48 hours, 72 hours, um, uh, calling back people and really nagging them until they do respond, trying to convert what we call refusal conversion is very tough to do in a, in a short field period. But then, and so, but that's, and it's expensive. So what's happened in the industry is that people have gone to robo-polling, 
uh, where you get called by a computer and you respond by pressing uh, digits or through voice-activated uh, responses. It's, re- it's listening and, and processing what you're responding. Or uh, internet polls uh, where you engage in expensive one-time recruitment of people and then you sort of try and use frequent flyer points or whatever to keep them on the hook and keep them coming back and taking surveys. So there's been a whole bunch of methodologies that have been applied to the problem of political polling that's really the way to distinguish them. Um, I would, like I would say, and I think the consensus is that live phone interviewing is still pretty good, subject to the problem of the short field period. There is, I'd say in Australia, I think Essential, who are an internet pollster, do a pretty good job. I think they pay a lot of attention to the quality of their sample. And then there are some pretty shady, pretty awful operators where where I think the, the worst is probably, and, and not you know, don't want to dump on, on newspapers uh, too unfairly here. But those Insta polls that pop up on a uh, on a media uh, operator's website, they're, they're pretty horrible, typically. And a guy like Silver, I think, has done a great job of helping us scrutinise those and, and distinguish between fly-by-night, shonky polls and, you know, better polls. So, Simon, you mentioned a little earlier about there being um, some kind of ability for polls to be skewed. And I think the New York Times reported this week that a young young African-American man (laughs) in Illinois is actually distorting national polling averages. Uh, So in some polls, he's weighted as much as 30 times more than the average respondent and as much as 300 times more than the least weighted respondent. So this has distorted the polls in favour of Trump. And the New York Times reports that a alone, he has been enough to put Mr. Trump in double digits of support among black voters. So how, how does something like this happen? And, and also, what, can you explain why minority groups get a weighted response as well? Okay. So now we're going to get into the mechanics a little bit here. When you do a poll, particularly a phone poll that's got a short field period, you will not get people in the proportions in which you know they are in the population. So a, a classic one will be young African-Americans, perhaps young African-American males, who getting them on the phone to take a poll uh, will be hard. Older people who live in the same place where they've lived for the last 30 years, and women in particular, will take will answer the phone and are likely to, to accede to the request to, uh, to answer some questions. Younger people, younger minorities, younger minority males, at this point, you're, you're moving down the scale of uh, ease of contact. Now, what we do after the fact, statistically, is we look at uh, various demographic bins and you can identify uh, after you've, you know, for financial reasons, you've had to shut down the call center. The, the, the media client needs their data so Dennis Shanahan can write his column. It's time to go to press, right, <laughs> on the media deadline with the media cycle. So you've got to stop or you've run out of money time or both, it's time to stop. So you stop and you look at your representation across uh, various demographic categories, and then you engage in a statistical uh, exercise called weighting. So if you know that, let's just take a very crude example, if you know that 10% of the population ought to be in a certain bin, uh, but in your survey, you only got 2% of in that bin, you'd, you'd have to upweight them by a factor of five. And, that, and you'll see it in the fine print for news poll, for any poll. The data have been weighted to make them represent the Australian population. Now, they're not going into the details of what they mean by that, but typically it's that we know from the census the age distribution. We know the regional uh, makeup um, of the Australian population or the American population. We know race and ethnicity. We know religion. We know a lot from the census. And you can adjust 
the data you did get from your finite time, finite resource survey to address some of the more obvious uh, biases that, that, that you've got. Now, this African-American problem in the United States that you've identified in, in this particular poll, it's, 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 it's really interesting. When you have a very rare outcome, like so this poll probably really, really struggled to get young African-American men to take the poll. So they were always going to be upweighted. Now overlay the fact that in that segment, support for Trump is close to zero, right? The one person uh, who did say they were voting for Trump now, uh, probably on the basis of some other characteristics as well, uh, this person might be, I know, especially religious or something, I don't know. But it is, it is not surprising for me to hear that there are people in the survey being weighted 300 times as much as, as someone else. That is undesirable, but not altogether rare. And sometimes uh, statisticians working for polling companies will arbitrarily stop that from happening. They say the most overrepresentation our statistical procedures will allow will be a factor of 10 or 20. You just arbitrarily cap it. But there's, there's sometimes there's very little you can do about the fact that this one, <laughs> a Trump supporter in a tiny, tiny corner of your data set is going to get this enormous weight. And by the way, depending on whether on that given survey that person said they supported Trump or not could have a really disproportionate impact, and indeed as it does. That's why we're so attracted to the story, um, on whether Trump support is zero, like literally zero, and many polls, by the way, have been finding Trump support among African Americans to be zero, <laughs> like literally of every African-American they spoke to, there was no one, no African-American expressed uh, support for Trump versus one or two. And then you apply the weights and that, and all of a sudden it looks like he's polling 12 or 13 or something among African-Americans. And it's, it's all to do with the sensitivity. You know, we've got a small, a segment of the population that's underrepresented. We're applying a lot of weights to them combined with the fact that vote support in that group is very skewed in the population and in in the data in particular. So so it can happen. It's it's unfortunate, but it also speaks to the uh, the dangers of slicing polling data too fine. The data that those statistical corrections work to make the overall sample representative of the overall population. Once you start going as we say in the industry below the top lines and start uh, slicing and dicing uh, the data by demographic groups, sometimes you reveal quite tellingly in this case, the inadequacies of polls to uh, uh, get you good insights into particular subgroups. And um, final question on polls before we dive into the nitty gritty. And that's a little bit of history just about George Gallup. So George Gallup was an American pioneer of survey sampling techniques and the inventor of the Gallup poll, a successful statistical method of survey sampling for measuring public opinion. And I guess a version of that is still used today. Oh, absolutely. So, so the history there is that uh, is, is what everybody in the industry calls the Literary Digest controversy, and that is uh, Literary Digest, sort of a forerunner of Reader's Digest, uh, asked their readers. They got a little clip out inside their weekly or monthly issue of Literary Digest, and it was it was what we would call a self-selected sample. It was readers, and who chose to send that back was it was as we call it self-select. They were overly interested in politics, or they are overly Republican. It had this, and I forget the details now, but it had this huge, huge skew. And it might have been, it might have been the 1932 election where where Roosevelt crushes uh, uh, Hoover, um, you know, the New Deal election, as it's called, um, the pre- pre- precursor to the New Deal. 
uh, and and the start of democratic dominance in in uh, in national politics for for decades to come. They they got that election demonstrably wrong um, because of the self-selected nature of their sample. And so Gallup uh, turned it around and started what we call, you know, today we call random sampling. And in particular, random digit dial is the version of that that's done by phone. And and it was really that debate has come back now uh, when people talk about some of the inadequacies of cheaper, nastier, dodgier web sampling that exactly, you know, do they suffer from what in the polling business we call the literary digest problem that is self-selection. And so Gallup, you know, and that company still dines out and makes its money off their reputation for quality. It's worth pointing out, though, that Gallup has had some terrible, terrible misses in recent uh, presidential election polling. Um, they were showing uh, Romney um, out by leading by plus fours and plus fives, uh, super storm St- Sandy uh, kind of hit the eastern seaboard ahead of the 2012 election. Um, Gallup went offline. They're headquartered in, in New Jersey. Uh, Gallup went offline for a good 10 days. And, uh, and when they came back, had sort of uh, tried to fix that up. But then they had a huge, big internal audit looking at the damage that had been done to their brand name. It had been a brand name in American polling since at least World War II. And that suffered terrible damage to their brand on the basis of uh, their method not performing too well in recent cycles. Well, Gallup himself liked to say that pollsters take the pulse of democracy, uh, but the late E.B. White, a contributor to the New Yorker, wrote in response, although you can take a nation's pulse, you can't be sure that the nation hasn't just run up a flight of stairs. Uh, so Gallup got it wrong. It was in the 1948 um, election when he predicted Dewey would beat Truman. Harry Truman. Yeah. yeah. So in March 2015, um, also um, to kind of bring it back to the modern day, the polls failed to predict Benjamin Netanyahu's victory in Israel and every major national poll failed to forecast the Conservative Party's win in the UK last May. Um, So the polls can and do get it wrong. And, you know, why should we be paying any attention, really? Because um, we've got a pretty good track record uh, in presidential elections in recent years, um, in the US at least, uh, for instance, myself and Nate Silver, uh, Drew Linzer, Sam Wang, there's a whole bunch of us doing poll averaging. You know, we called 51 states out of 51 um, in 2012. Uh, Nate did very well in 08. Um, the US case is it's not just polls in, in the lead in. You mentioned there's a bit of data science in the background now. That's actually doing a lot of work as well. Um, and the other thing, we'll talk about 16 in, in a moment, um, but when the polls are showing as big a lead as Hillary Clinton's got, you can be pretty confident that uh, any errors in, the, in any given poll, or in particular any error in a poll average, we're way past that at this point. Now, Brexit was close. Brexit, A, it's the UK, there's not as much polling. It wasn't a party election. Um, it was a it was a ballot. It was a simple yay-nay. And there wasn't a lot of history to condition on to to calibrate the poll estimates. Uh, that's where some of the data science magic comes in. Um, and, and the polls had, you know, um, were off by about two points there and, you know, the wrong way. But the 15 general election was a was a bad day out for the British polling industry. And again, they've torn themselves inside out trying to understand that. I actually think there's a little bit of follow the leader going on in England. Again, it's one of these sim- symptoms of the industry there being a little thin. And and you get this phenomenon, this is a conjecture of mine, called herding, 
That is, if I'm running a polling company, do I want to be like Gallup and plus five away from the pack? Or do I look at what the rest of the industry and plunk myself close to the middle there? Now, I've got lots of leeway to do that is the truth of the matter through all that waiting I just talked about how I turn the raw data into a, a number that's going into the newspaper, I have a lot of discretion as to how that happens. In the home stretch, do I want to be, if I'm going to be wrong, I'm going to be wrong with five other polling companies, or am I going to be out here on my own? And, and I can't help but think, you know, polling about elections is weird, right? It's, it's not like, the, the, the true number will be revealed on election day. You will be shown to be wrong. Like if you polled the day before the election, and you're off by five, everybody will notice. It's not like an airy-fairy proposition like, you know, where you, no one will ever know the truth. The stakes are very high. So I think a little bit of the, the incentives to engage in herding uh, are pretty high. And I, I, I got a hunch that that was what's been going on in, in the British industry. The Race for the White House, where we put the 2016 US election in perspective. To listen to other episodes in this series, head to theconversation.com or tune in on Wednesday nights at 7.30 on 107.3. I'm here with Tom Switzer and Brendan O'Connor and special guest Simon Jackman. We have been discussing the polls and what they mean for democracy, um, but now to ground them in some real-world politic. Uh, so where are the national polls currently sitting and where are the key state polls at? Literally before we came on air, I just took a look at um, the poll average that I built for Huffington Post. I was their cut-rate version of Nate Silver in, in 2012. That model that I, I built for them um, has Clinton ahead by over eight points nationally. That's averaging over all available public polling and correcting for some of the factors we were just talking about, some of the known biases. That is a monster lead. Yeah. All right. That, Context, um, what was it in 2012 before that election? Three months before uh, by that election. this stage, we were uh, probably at about three or four mm. and in the end the polls actually understated um Obama. we were off by a point nationally now it didn't hurt us state by state we still called every state mm. correctly but um absent a big shy trump supporter mm. phenomenon eight points that's mm. that's a, we're looking at a 54 46 split of the vote that is colossal remember obama beat romney 52 48 mm. right it was a pretty comfortable win and then we can talk about the state by state polling yeah, I mean, real clear politics average is about 6.7 at the moment, I think, as well. So that's that's very high as well. Uh, the state-by-state state polling, Ohio's been the interesting state that I've been following that's uh, been a place where Trump supporters or those who think he'll do well somewhere, at least in the Midwest, have been suggesting that that's his kind of glimmer of hope. I think Pennsylvania's definitely gone uh, that was a glimmer of hope a month back before all of these various uh, scandals. And Virginia has been fascinating to watch. I mean, that really is very strongly in the Clinton camp. Kane helps there as well. So that's that's a big change for those who follow U.S. politics historically. The notion that Virginia is now relatively taken for granted and not so much of a swing state uh, when the pickup of Virginia for Obama in 08 and 012 was big, was big news. Uh, that was a big change. So the demographics of, uh, you know, more liberal people moving out of the D.C. area into Virginia is, I think, made a big difference in terms of, uh, you know, quite relatively populous and important And state. the national mood to Clinton, correct me if I'm wrong, is so profound that even uh, red states, traditional red states like Georgia, uh, Arizona, Utah, they're now in play, aren't they? 
Arizona is. I, 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 uh, and Georgia would be a, a shocker, a real shocker. Um, but nevertheless, it's in play. Uh, song, yeah. People are talking about, and Clinton's moving resources to, mm-hmm. to, to put these states in play and also to uh, yeah. places with Senate races up. Utah is interesting. That's a, a very particular story there. Keep in mind, you know, it's the Mormon homeland, quite almost literally. Romney uh, did especially well there for that reason. Um, Trump was never going to do as well there. I suspect he'll probably still win, but it is turning into a really interesting race there that no one, it's just not supposed to be. It's the, it's the most, in 12, it was it was like an 80-20 Republican-Democrat state, and now it's shaping up as a three-way, four-way. And intriguingly, race. Nevada has picked every presidential election since 1912, except for the 1976 election when Gerald Ford lost, whom Nevada picked, he lost to Jimmy Carter. That's all things considered remarkably close, Nevada. Um, yeah, I, I, I'd compared to the other states. Yeah, I'd given the it away. States. I'd given it away um, to. Um, What's the average at this stage, Tom? Yeah, yeah, it's about it's about a two point lead for Clinton there. All things considered, that's narrow. Yeah, let's have a look here. Yeah, two. Uh, well, one up point, until two weeks ago, one point eight points. Yeah. yeah, up until two weeks ago, Trump was actually leading there uh, yeah. by a point or two. Yeah, that's right, and and a similar story in Ohio. So Ohio is one of my bellwethers. Uh, no one's won the presidency without winning Ohio since 1960, mm-hmm. and Republicans have never won the presidency without winning um, Ohio, and and it was the block state uh, for for Obama with respect to uh, McCain and then Romney. And it probably is this cycle too. If Trump can't win Ohio, then he can't win. But, you know, three weeks ago, Trump was narrowly in front in Ohio and Democrats are going, okay, so we're not going to stop him there, but we have many more paths that would run through states like Nevada. Now it's looking like that's about a two-point lead there for Clinton. And if that's the case, then it's over. It's all over Red Rover. One thing that interests me, I suppose, why I've been following Georgia, that was somewhere that Obama did did relatively well is – are younger voters going to come out in the way that they did for Obama? Mm. I mean, the Washington Post monkey cage had a good piece today about the very lukewarm enthusiasm Hillary Clinton has amongst African-Americans under 30. That was, you know, a huge block on John Kerry becoming president in 2004, that the under 30 vote didn't come out in the way that the Democrats would have been hoping in places like Ohio. So, Simon, for those of us who fear a Trump presidency, what, what's, what's, what's your sort of feel on the, on the youth vote or the vote under 30? Well, I think you just identified it. It's those of us who fear a Trump presidency. <laughs> and, and, and many, the Sanders people do. So the Sanders people skewed incredibly young. And a big question has been, after the acrimony of the Democratic primary contest, would the Sanders people come out to support Hillary? And the answer is Donald Trump. He is so abhorrent. What about those WikiLeaks? To what extent does that damper their enthusiasm for Hillary Clinton? Because those WikiLeaks stumps reaffirm that Sanders people's widespread doubts about Hillary, don't they? A little, but but Trump is the gift that keeps on giving. For every WikiLeaks story, you know, it's just 10x the the outrage and the exposure. And, And Trump himself, he just can't stop. So the Washington Post reported this week that civil rights activists are warning that Donald Trump's unsubstantiated claims of widespread voter fraud in inner cities are really a thinly veiled racist attack. And they're accusing him of injecting another incendiary element into an election that has been dubbed the most negative and divisive in modern political history. Uh, So do the polls allow us to understand how much of Trump's support is due to racism? 
the short answer is no, um, because a lot of media polls are very hit-and-run affairs. Again, it's all driven by time and budget, and a lot of it is what we call horse race polling. Who are you going to vote for? Some demographic questions to help with the statistical adjustments that you have to perform. And then maybe one or two issue questions, maybe a question about favorability or approval of the president, and they're out. Probing into the underlying psychology of support for Trump is something that it's, it's the academic polls that I've been associated with. And so um, they're few and far between. And indeed, the really high quality ones will be done in face-to-face mode. Um, something, a project I used to direct called the American National Election Study is done in face-to-face mode. It's a, it's a one and a half hour interview done in your home at the time of your choosing. Uh, it costs millions of dollars to do this study. Um, it's right out that I said silver standard for uh, uh, for uh, live interview, uh, random digit dial. Gold standard is is this face to face interview. They're the studies that will give us some insight into the underlying psychology. And there, look, I can tell you about what's been true in every election since 1964, and that is that uh, race is a powerful motivator of political preference in the United States long before we had an African-American at the top of the ticket, and long before we had Donald Trump. And so if race, either, you know, the race of the respondent, white, Latino, African-American, Asian-American, something else, or among white voters, attitudes about race and questions to do with race in their minds, those, those have been powerful predictors of political preference in the United States for decades and will be this cycle as well. The Race for the White House, a US election podcast for the non-American. So this year's presidential election has split Americans along the lines of race, class, gender, and as The Atlantic reports this week, now marriages. Uh, In the past, husbands and wives have tended to agree over candidates, but this year's polling says women are overwhelmingly backing Clinton, even if their husbands are supporting Trump. Uh, So how much more uh, popular is Clinton with women than Trump, and are women winning the election for Clinton? Minorities are winning the election for Clinton, as they have for Obama. Um, but but women are why we're talking about plus eight and not plus four or plus three. Like Trump, like, good Lord. I mean... It's it, like 20 it, points, isn't it? College-educated uh, women in August, right? So this is before a lot of the recent bad news for Trump of the last couple of weeks. In August, Clinton was outperforming Obama among college-educated uh, white women uh, by, by 18 points. Mm. Uh, among white women without a college degree, she was underperforming. But again, that was August. And I suspect that has either been neutralized in the events of recent weeks or even come back to the point where she's uh, doing better in that demographic than uh, uh, than Obama did. I mean, one of the hopes of uh, that ghastly kind of access Hollywood tape would have been that men would have seen that and said, you know, I can't support Trump because of what he's saying. It's not just, you know, our daughters, our wives, uh, women we've known. But the polls, I don't think, quite represent that. I mean, the polls since that those revelations of Trump boasting about sexual harassment have come out, the polls really show that it's affected the female vote and all of the things that I've looked at much more than it of moving the male vote. I mean, there's a sense that women have reacted very dramatically to that. That's why I think that scandal was different 
to other scandals because it affected behaviour, it affected preferences of a very large sector of the population. So I think as much as you might not want to talk about something like a gender gap on this issue, uh, there does seem to be a gender gap that, you know, as you said, men are maybe not following their wives in this preference or men just coming out and saying, that's ghastly, I should be against it. Similarly, it just is an issue that seemingly women have responded to differently to men, or at least more dramatically than men. And we should stress that the allegations that have been made by eight or so men and counting uh, has just put a nail in the coffin, if you like, on that issue. Clinton has made states like we were talking about earlier, such as Texas and even Utah, much more competitive. Mm -hmm. And I think Nate Silver has even said he can imagine them becoming swing states by 2024 or 2028. Mm -hmm. If you were an advisor on the Clinton campaign, what would make more sense? Um, Do you think you try to put uh, traditionally red states like Texas, Utah and Missouri in play or reinforce your traditional blue states? And if you were working on her campaign, what would be keeping you up late at night? Oh, wow. Okay. I would not go after Texas and Missouri this cycle um, if I were Clinton or someone advising Clinton. Um, Nor would I go after traditional blue states, the name of the game in other swing states. Presidential candidates, for instance, use California as an ATM. Um, they fly into Silicon Valley, they fly into LA, you raise money and you hop back on the plane. You don't campaign there. You don't see, by the way, I lived in California for 20 years. You don't see political ads there, at least not for the presidency, because it's just not competitive. If you want to go see ads, um, go live in Ohio, right? Or, or and wait for the primaries. In. But, but in the general for the presidency, mm. look, California is just not competitive, right? Yeah. So, so you don't waste money in non-competitive states. And right now, demographic change is what's driving... You know, Nate to say that Texas will be in play, you know, eight years, 12 years from now. But that's not today. Today, it's about Ohio. It's about about Florida. Hang on to Colorado. Make sure you win states that Obama brought over the line, like Nevada. Great state. North Carolina, too. North Carolina that uh, went one year, went eight for Clinton, 12 went back. That's where this thing will be decided. And, And in particular, remember what I said earlier. If you can stop Trump winning a couple of those states, it's over. Mm. It's over. I agree. I mean, I think that we're going to see a very interesting outcome of Hillary Clinton's ground game in Ohio. I mean, we've heard a lot about it. There's a tremendous war chest of money spend it on those states that matter. Uh, What she does in the debate, I think is going to be very interesting this week to follow. Is she going to be ultra cautious or is she going to bait Trump at some point in the debate and sort of uh, Trump, you know, could explode. I mean, he's uh, Simon's uh, winding him in on a fishing rod. And that's that's that was brilliantly done by Hillary Clinton that last quarter of an hour of the first debate. So I wouldn't like to see her ultra cautious. Maybe she might mention the environment, some issues to try to uh, remind people under 30 that uh, she is a candidate with some concerns that they might have in common. I think she should use the debate to try to um, not respond to his attacks or counterattacks and try to pivot to the moral high ground and focus more on a policy agenda uh, over the next four years. So with less than three weeks to go, Donald Trump is already calling the election. In what appears to be a first, the Republican nominee has declared the results of the presidential election invalid before voters have even had their say. Uh, So on Monday at a rally in Wisconsin, he claimed that ballots cast by undocumented immigrants uh, led to Barack Obama's victory in North Carolina in 2008 and um, that people who died 10 years ago are still voting. So Trump is calling it now. Now it's our turn. In light of deep dive discussion on the polls 
yesterday, if the election was held today and the US went to the polls, who would America choose for the next four years? Oh, Hillary Clinton. And I think the interesting conversation is, frankly, the one who's going to win the Senate. And indeed, indeed, does is the swing to the Democrats so big that the House is in play? And I, you know, the presidency is a foregone conclusion in my mind at this point. I I agree. I mean, I think Hillary Clinton is in incredibly strong position. Whether the Republicans in the House can differentiate themselves from Trump, I mean, Paul Ryan, we've seen doing this dance enough to save some seats there. That That is going to be fascinating to watch. I agree. The real, the real race is in the Congress. But let me be different from my colleagues and just quote Eugene Robinson, one of <laughs> America's most distinguished columnists, a Pulitzer Prize winner at the Washington Post, who's been a guest at the US Studies Centre in the past. He says this week, make it stop. Won't somebody please make it stop? We have three more weeks of this appalling spectacle in which a ridiculous comic book villain, a cross between the Joker and the Penguin, is trying his best to destroy American democracy. How many new outrages will test our capacity to be outraged? Well, I say we probably all agree. Polls only forecast what the polls are telling us about November 8 today. And just to be clear, we are getting this information from Nate Silver's election forecast website from the Nowcast tab. Hillary is sitting on a very comfortable 88.9%, up by 1.3% from last week. And Trump's prediction of losing is looking set to come true with only 11% of the vote, down by 1.6% from last week. Uh, So that brings us to the close of our sixth episode of The Race to the White House. If you'd like to hear more from us, head to the Conversations website, theconversation.com. You can also search for us in your favourite podcast app. And this podcast is made by 2SER 107.3 FM with the support of United States Study Centre at the University of Sydney and The Conversation. Thanks to Tom Switzer, Brendan O'Connor and Simon Jackman for helping us make sense of it all. And don't forget, the third and final presidential debate is set for Wednesday 19th US time. Uh, It's set to be held in Nevada, Las Vegas and will be moderated by Fox News' Chris Wallace. But will the third time be a charm? We'll dissect all that and more next week, counting down the race to the White House. Thank you.